Our Father, I thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, this, this gathering of your people in this place, for your, your family here, um, coming together just to worship you and to remember who you are, to remember Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to, to know him, um, to be known by him. This morning, uh, just over the next few minutes, and then all that we do this morning, the Holy Spirit will be at work in each one of us. Um, have us hear what we need to hear from the Word. Uh, say what you want to say to us, and just continue to transform us into your likeness. Uh, continue to draw us to you. Give us eyes uh, to see who Jesus really is. He's the Christ. He's our Lord and Savior. May we believe in Him. So, we've been in the Gospel of John now for several weeks. We're continuing in the Gospel of John this morning. We've got kind of a long passage to cover. It's John chapter 5, 1 through 47. And we're just going to jump straight into it. Like I said, we have a lot to cover. Uh, but we're going to break it up as we go. Uh, and so, as we get going, we're just going to read the first nine verses. Uh, so, if you want to turn in your Bible and follow along with me, it's John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. It'll also be on the screen if you want to follow along. It says this. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, before we go any further, just keep that little bit in mind. Uh, Jesus went to a feast of the Jews in Jerusalem. It kind of seems like an insignificant thing, but it means something that matters. Continuing on. Now, there's, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic. It's called Beth Bethesda which has five roofed columns. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now, Jesus performed a lot of healings. He performed a lot of miracles. And honestly, in John's Gospel, uh, many of them are glossed over. Right? There's signs, there's wonders, there's miracles that are kind of happening throughout Jesus' ministry that John just doesn't talk about in his Gospel Maybe he just merely offhandedly kind of like says that these things are happening as he goes. And we know that John's point in writing this book, as we talked about several times, is to show us who Jesus really is so that we would believe in him and so that we would receive life in his name. But surely, like every time that Jesus performed a miracle, it's a proclamation of who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he's the long-expected Savior, the one who takes away the sins of his people, to restore right relationship with God, to usher in and reign over his kingdom forever, blessing the nations. The Old Testament prophecies who pointed to this Savior, the Messiah, would, would come healing the sick and, and raising the dead and making the blind see, right? And Jesus is making himself known through all these different signs and wonders that he's doing. But like I said, there's a lot of them that John just kind of doesn't talk about. So what makes this particular instance significant to the book of John? 
Remember that thing back in the first verse that I said to keep in mind uh, that Jesus was in town for a feast of the Jews. This is, this is where that becomes significant. Because John is sort of transitioning in this book from showing us instances where Jesus had stepped into different religious institutions uh, and traditions to reveal himself to Christ that those institutions and traditions pointed to. And now John is, uh, through the next several chapters, uh, walking us through the many instances of Jesus stepping into religious feasts and festivals of the Jews to reveal himself as the Messiah that these feasts and festivals were in fact celebrating and pointing to. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast. It's important. And the next verse tells us when this miracle took place, which is also important. Verse 10 says this, Now that day was the Sabbath. The Sabbath. The day for holy rest. We don't know what feast Jesus was there for, for sure, but the healing took place on the Sabbath. And now the rest of the story kind of unfolds from here. So we'll jump back in. Chapter 5, verse 9 through 16. And you can follow along. It says, that, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. And it's not awful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who's the man who said that to you? Or who's the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. And according to the Jews, and we don't know which Jews uh, specifically here, but it's a feast, so everybody's there, everybody's going through, through these rituals together. But according to, according to the Jews, the law is being broken by the healed man who's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. The guy who Jesus just healed and told him to pick up his mat and walk was doing just that thing. He was carrying his mat. And it, it seems that the man assumed that the one who healed him uh, certainly had the authority to tell him to carry his mat even on the Sabbath. You know, like in all these stories in John, uh, if you go read like different commentaries and all, you, you'll find like a bunch of different speculations about the characters in the story. And a common thing that I found uh, said about this guy is that he sort of like rats out on Jesus, right? Because it tells him who he is, that he's protecting himself. And I'm really not so sure. I actually think his assumption here that, that if Jesus healed him, then he must have the authority to tell him to carry his mat on the Sabbath. Also, I, I think that demonstrates that maybe this man is the only one in the story who really gets it. Anyhow, the, the Jews, they also must assume it's less this man's fault for carrying the mat, for breaking the law, but it would be more on whoever it was that had done this work of healing on the Sabbath and then given them the instruction. That person is the bigger fish to fry, right? So they want to know who did that. And they eventually find out it's Jesus. Now, there's evidently a pattern 
uh, of Jesus doing these things on the Sabbath, Jesus doing Messiah-type work on the Sabbath, because John says this is why they persecuted him. And we also know from the Synoptic Gospels that there's a lot of other uh, similar stories of things like this happening on the Sabbath. And so the Jews are upset with Jesus for doing these things on the Sabbath day, and they obviously begin to press him because the next thing that happens is that Jesus answers them. John chapter 5, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. And I am. Now, as they pressed him, Jesus could have, he could have just argued with them on the validity even of their charges. Think about it. After all, the man, uh, the, the mat that was being carried, that's just a breaking of, of those laws that aren't actually like from the scriptures, right? They're not actually from the law of God. Rather, it's a man-made like fence built around the law of God in order to keep from accidentally breaking the law. Also, the Sabbath rules apply uh, to not doing like your usual day-to-day -day work, right? You're not supposed to do your usual day-to-day -day activities, your day-to-day -day work on the Sabbath. But it, it did make provisions for the exception. Like helping an animal who's in distress. Or certainly, I mean, you just, this is logical, right? People had to have babies on the Sabbath from time to time. People were allowed to help people. There was room for the exception. And the work that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath, healing a man who had been disabled for 38 years, and that's exceptional work. But Jesus didn't refute the charges like that. Instead, he raised the stakes. He raises the stakes. Let's see what he, what he does. John 5, 18 through 29. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he, he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life. Hold knowledge, right? He really raises the stakes. He says, if God's working, he's working also. 
Because God's his father, and he's doing his father's work. He was sent by the father. Now, God is known as father by his people, but Jesus was saying that he was his, that God was his own father. He was claiming more than just being part of the people of God. Like John said, this was the reason they're seeking to kill him, because he was even calling God his own father, making himself like equal with God. But it's not over there. Jesus like takes it up another notch. He raises the stakes even further. Not only is he claiming to be God's own son, he's claiming to have God's authority. To actually be the one who's been given the authority to judge. The one who gives eternal life. And if what Jesus is saying is true, then I mean, then what law? Like, which was made for man would have authority over him, if he is who he says he is. Jesus, as usual, he's not just saying the stuff, just making some wild claims, right? He's actually demonstrating it. I mean, the very fact that he was healing on the Sabbath, that is, like, he's doing a work that only God could do. And he's doing it on the Sabbath. That in itself is a proclamation of who he must really be. He said it, he showed it, he demonstrated it. He is. He must be the Son of God. He's Lord over the Sabbath. And what's more, the Sabbath itself is about him. It, it remembers him. It points to him. We're, we're going to get into that in a, minute, in a minute. But my point here is just that every single thing that's happening in this passage is uh, meant to explicitly reveal the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the long-expected Savior. Everything Jesus is doing, everything he's saying is purposely and explicitly proclaiming himself to be the long-expected Savior, the Messiah, the King. But they don't see it. Right? They don't like what Jesus is saying. All they can hear is blasphemy. All they can hear is a man who's claiming to be equal with God. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's finish reading this passage. It's 5.30-47. Jesus goes on. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamb, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own, in his own name, you'll receive him. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Like I said, they don't, they don't see it. They don't like what Jesus is saying. All they can hear is blasphemy. All they can hear is a man claiming to be equal with God. It's like Jesus says to them in verse 36, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I'm doing, like the things I'm doing right now, bear witness about who I am. They can't believe. Though the prophecies that they knew from their scriptures pointed to a Messiah who would come, healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and so on, they can't believe. Because they can't believe, kind of like we talked about last week, Jesus gives them more. He gives them witnesses. Right? Those who can attest to who he really is. And it begins with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you remember from the beginning of John, he saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove. You remember that? And what John the Baptist saw, he also told others. Like he never hesitated to say, Jesus, he's the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And if John was a witness based on what he claimed to see, then he is a witness to the Father testifying that Jesus is his Son, who sent from heaven to do his promised work on earth. If John the Baptist's testimony is true, then you have to believe that Jesus is the one sent from God. If they don't believe John the Baptist, and they don't believe that's actually a testimony from the Father, then maybe they'll believe the Scriptures, which they won't. Jesus said they can go back to the scriptures at the word to Moses, the great prophet. And even what he wrote pointed to Jesus. And they can find him there. It's a poignant place to point here in the context of the Sabbath and the whole charge of breaking the Sabbath law because it was Moses who led the people in the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt so long before. Where the people were hungry in the wilderness and God provided this bread from heaven, manna, right, for them to eat. And when he gave them instructions concerning the manna, he commanded them just to gather enough each day to have for that day. And on the sixth day, they were supposed to gather enough to have on the seventh day so that they could rest from their work on the seventh day. Sabbath. And then later in Exodus, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and this is where he received the Ten Commandments from God himself, which included the command to observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Exodus 20, verses 8 and 11, it says this. This is part of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, uh, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This right here, I just read, is ultimately the law that the Jews were accusing Jesus of breaking by healing on the Sabbath day. And they get it from Moses' writings, which they're dedicated to. They look to the law to gain eternal life, Jesus said in this passage. 
So by pointing back to Moses, Jesus is saying that even this law that they are like so up in arms about in the moment, even that law is actually a testimony of who he really is. The Sabbath itself is about him. See, the Sabbath, from the beginning, it even just shows us this in the, in the Ten Commandments, right? The Sabbath, from the beginning, was instituted by God, and it was rooted not in the work of God, or not in the work, I mean, not in the work of Moses, uh, but, but in the finished work of creation. On the seventh day, after creating all things, God rested. And so to observe the Sabbath was meant to be a reminder of the eternal God. And that, that the promises that he has made with his people, promises to save them and to restore them and to bless the nations through them, all the promises God made were as good as done because in him it's already finished. God's not in a bind. God's not anxious about what's going to happen. He's not straining to reel this whole thing or to keep things in order. He is at rest. The Sabbath wasn't to be observed in order to gain eternal life, but to remember the eternal God, who that life comes from. The Sabbath isn't for God. It's for us to remember who God is, to remember how His uh, eternal realities ought to impact us presently, to lead us to, to rest in His faithfulness. Now, Jesus, throughout this passage, he talks a lot about eternity, about eternal life, a good bit. Back in verse 28 and 29, you probably thought I was just skipping over this. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Besides the book of Revelation, and the Old Testament the book of Daniel, and a few other spots, this is a passage that people often turn to in order to kind of get a grip on what is ultimately going to happen to, to everything, but specifically to us individually for eternity. We want to know about heaven and we want to know about hell. And I get it, right? Heaven and hell, the afterlife, what happens after here, those are natural things to be curious about. If you were with us through the book of Ecclesiastes, we found eternity is set in our hearts. Of course we wonder about eternity. And I think that what often happens is we get so consumed with eternity and so consumed with like heaven and hell and who goes where and why they go there and what we think we're supposed to do about it that we can miss the point. Sort of like the Jews in this story that we've just read, who were so caught up in the law of Scripture that they were missing the one to whom all Scripture pointed. However, as Jesus talks about eternity in this passage, he isn't merely like trying to impress on us how the present will impact the future and impact eternity. He's revealing realities about his eternal nature in order to impact us presently. He wants to help us to see what is presently happening from an eternal perspective. Jesus made this charge in 539. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. What Jesus is saying to the Jews who are 
persecuting him is this. If you really understood the Sabbath, if you really understood Moses and the law that you're so passionately protecting, you would recognize me. I came doing God-only type work on the Sabbath. I've come fulfilling prophecy, healing the sick, making the blind to see, helping the lame to walk. I've come with the testimony of the Father, as witnessed by John the Baptist. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one sent from God to take away the sins of his people. I'm the rest that the Sabbath has always pointed to. I was there in creation. I'm the one who spoke to Moses. I'm the heel that will crush the serpent's head. I'm the finishing work. I am the beginning, and I am the end. You're turning this like whole Sabbath thing into a trial, but I am the true judge. And I'm telling you, the Sabbath is for you. It's not against you. And I am for you. And the work that I do is the work of the Father. And it's not this anxious toil of law-keeping in order to attain righteousness, in order to attain eternal life. It's the healing work of mind, body, and soul. It's the work of bringing heaven realities of eternity into the present so that you can live in and from the true Sabbath, the true rest of God. This is a long passage. There's so much here, more than we can exhaustively cover in one Sunday morning, for sure. But I hope you hear all that Jesus is just proclaiming about himself, both in word and in deed in this passage. Ultimately, that he is God with us, and that he has come to give us life, everlasting life, even here and now. He came here to save us here. Maybe you've heard that you need to make a choice today so that you can um, go to heaven and not go to hell. And maybe that seems like a, a, a bit much to handle or a bit much to wrap your head around. And I think there's truth to these after-death realities. I fully, I fully believe that there are heaven and hell realities, though, that exist right here on earth. all kinds of hell Physical sufferings like sickness or injuries to all kinds of abuses that so many suffer, that maybe even so many of us have suffered from. Some of you will know some of these. The hell of loss. The hell of abandonment. The hell of rejection. The hell of loneliness that so many endure. There are all kinds of ways too in which we climb over and clamor to get on top of the other one, and we use each other up, and it's it's a hell of a way to live, to use that term absolutely correctly. Sometimes we Christians in the church, we even use our faith like a weapon, weapon, we use it to create divisions and sides amongst our own, and, and we use it also to like accuse and to keep people out or to keep people down, and in so doing, the church has many times created hell on earth for many people. And then, of course, there's the hell of war. All the horrific things that we're seeing in 
news the last couple weeks in Israel, that's the present hell on earth. It's evil on full display. Scripture says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we'll consider that, if we would just really pause and just consider, we find that it's true. We'll find that because of our sins, we live in these present hells. I couldn't possibly name them all. But we all have them, and we naturally bring them to bear on one another, even. But here's the good news. So where hell is, where hell is on earth, Jesus brings heaven. Like we pray it in the Lord's Prayer, which we've been praying together so much lately. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the promise, even of Sabbath, that all these things will be made new. It's done. It's finished. Heaven will come to earth. Every tear will be wiped away for eternity. And though we can't quite see the end yet, we can rest. We can sat in the finished work of Jesus Christ who takes away our sins and who gives us Jesus is our Sabbath rest forever and today. There's a present rest that we can experience in heaven. And we can experience like heaven breaking in and breaking through here and now as Jesus begins to transform us and to redeem us and even to use us to make him known and to make his kingdom known. I guess the point this morning is this, it's just that I don't want you to miss Jesus, the Savior, because you're caught up in something else that you think will save you somehow. For the Jews in this story, they were missing the forest from the trees. They couldn't see the eternal God in the flesh who was right in front of them because they were wrapped up in their own self-righteousness. For you, maybe you even get wrapped up in like the eternal realities of heaven and hell and whether you can come to terms with it, and whether you can see justice in what God does alongside His love and mercy, whether you can make that make sense for you, or, or maybe you get wrapped up in some other theological debate, or maybe you get wrapped up in just trying to do all the right things, like going to church, and like saving your money right, and giving your money right, and raising your kids to do the right things, whatever it is. All this money is simply, don't miss You just stop and rest. We're going to enter into a time response. Maybe you should need to just close your eyes and kind of begin uh, to have a time of reflection and prayer. Would you stop and rest? Would you pause and consider Jesus this morning? He claims that he has demonstrated that he is your loving Savior. Nobody and nothing else can take his place. Nobody and nothing else can save you. Nobody and nothing else can bring heaven to earth. Prayerfully ask yourself this. What or who do you tend to naturally turn to besides Jesus? 
What or who do you tend to naturally turn to besides Jesus? Like when you're not here, when you're not doing the church thing on Sunday or during your MC or whatever, what or who do you treat as a savior then? Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your activities, your work, your success, your knowledge, maybe your reputation, your stuff, things you can get, being happy, having pleasure, experiencing pleasure. Maybe a good thing to do is consider what you do on your phone when you get bored. I think that could be a good indicator for returning. If you're shopping, or you're learning, or you're working, or you're watching games, or playing games, and watching sports, or market watching. And none of that's bad. They can all be gifts from God himself, like the Sabbath came, and is. But we just stop and consider it. Like, are you using something or someone other than Jesus as a functional savior? And then consider how that's actually going. Has it helped you really escape whatever it is you run from? Consider this too. Does it ever actually end up creating a new hell for yourself or, or maybe a new hell for someone else? Don't miss Jesus. Hear this call that he said in this passage. It is they. He said in the scriptures. When I say all these things and more. That it is all the things of creation that bear witness about him. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. So may you and I not miss the forest from the trees. Not miss Jesus for the good things that he gives and does. Let's come to him again. We're going to enter into a time of response and we can continue in a reflective, responsive, prayerful time. We're going to come and we're going to take communion as we always do as the band comes and leads us in worship. And we come down the middle aisle, you can take the bread, you can dip it in the wine and the juice. This is a time for us to come together and to remember Jesus. And we remember that he is who he said he is, that he's done what he said he would do, that he is the long expected. That he gave himself for us. That he rose from the grave. That he gives us life. And as we come, we are proclaiming that truth to each other as well. And so I, if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, as we respond, we invite you to come and to remember Jesus and to proclaim him together with us. You can also give your tithes and offerings in the back as you come. Uh, you can give online as well. We always want to remind you during this time to However you give, just pause and remember the God who gives us everything. Whether that's slipping out of your account or whatever, like, it's, tithes and offerings is, a, is an opportunity for us to worship God for who he really is. And for us to put our trust in him and to rest in him, just like the Sabbath in many ways. So we invite you to that time as well. And I'm going to pray for us and you want to spend some time in prayer by yourself or even with someone, I encourage you.